the take two oral history project Robert Forth my name is Arthur Ullman so we were talking uh, during the tape break about uh, the, the blind gambler and uh, and, risk and the risk taker and uh, I don't view uh, Smith as being a blind gambler. He took risks. And uh, much of his work, when you think of, say, the, uh, the um, photograms made with Cairo syrup, liquid lens idea, is like a Zen painting where you lo overload the brush to make the first stroke, say, on a bamboo shoot, knowing full well that you're going to splatter a bit of the ink. Now, you can't predict the configuration of that splatter, but you know it's going to be there, and it's a part of the plan. It was also a part of an accident. <clears throat> this is a Dada point of view, by the way, which uh, uh, was used by Duchamp and many other people. Man Ray certainly did a lot of this, uh, though he didn't show much of it. Duchamp showed a great deal of, of his playing around with the planned accident. Um, it has certainly nothing to do, in my estimation, though, with blind gambling. And again, the Morgenstern and von Neumann game theory, where flipping a coin or shooting dice or playing roulette is sheer chance, blind gambling. Uh, playing whist or bridge or poker, less so, because there's a little sight going on there. Uh, playing chess, no gamble, but risk-taking. Because all the pieces are always out in full sight, and it's up to you to play well or play poorly. Um, I think, to, to, to go back to some of the uh, things I remember Henry saying about the Midwest and his life in the Midwest, I think what he might have occasionally regretted was that he wasn't a gambler. You know, because the the ethic very often the, the Protestant ethic was uh, not to uh, do this or that or the other, even though you knew it might be uh, fun, emotionally or, or somehow physical fun, sexual things, or playing jokes or whatever. <clears throat> but you rule out a lot of the element of comedy of life by following the predicted tragic view of life and tragedy is prediction in the first act you're told what's going to happen to the hero and sure as hell in the last act it happens and uh, when you're told uh, in the Hebraic Christian tradition um, that uh, at birth you're going to die and you're going to die a sinner and that you must live well and it's harder to take the next step into heaven or a Hindu going through the reincarnation bit, take a step up by being good and uh, staying in the caste system where you were born. <laughs> so, well, that, that puts a damper on some of the fun you can have in life, you know. <laughs> and uh, as I recall things that Henry said, he, he regretted this part of his life. Now, I don't necessarily associate that with the Midwest. I have had students from all over the world, and I've had students from the East and the South and so on, and they all got hang-ups, and some of them are those exact hang-ups. 
the Midwesterner is uh, very often in this country, and the West, far Westerner, in fact, is very often in this country uh, suffering under um, delusions of uh, inferiority. And just like uh, in the early, late 19th century, uh, the New Yorker would always apologize for the Englishman for being a, a New Yorker. Uh, Midwesterners always felt somewhat uh, overpowered by people from the East Coast, and the Cowboys felt overpowered by the people from the Midwest, and on and on and on. <clears throat> Henry did say occasionally that he had these feelings, but uh, if he came on overly strong, it was to, over, to compensate to get over this fact so he could state his case to people who perhaps he imagined or perhaps for truth were trying to pull rank on him, intellectual rank or rank of uh, region or <laughs> what have you. Uh, those things I can, uh, I can identify with very easily because I lived in the Midwest and uh, in the South and uh, I was very poor, and then occasionally we would be rather rich. And uh, I know that uh, how rank pulling can go by region and by economy and by kind of education. A Ph.D. from Podunk College and a Ph.D. from Harvard are not the same piece of paper. They won't open the same doors. Has nothing to do with the person, perhaps. Anyway, <clears throat> these, uh, these uh, chinks in the armor uh, are, I believe, more obvious in the rural people. And many Midwesterners were small town and rural people because it, it is still the agricultural center of the country. California next, obviously. You've got other kinds of country people here that um, those are those are difficult handicaps to overcome, and the folklore of the United States uh, forever puts the rural person down. Yet when you read the biographies of people who have amounted to a great deal for the good of humanity, they were uh, they were from some of those out of the way places. And I think uh, walking into that big new world when they left home was the uh, culture shock that got them to see things that others were unable to see because they were accustomed to, to the view. I, uh, well, I've said enough about that. Is there a regionality in the arts? <clears throat> yes, I think definitely so. And it has, more to, it has less to do at the moment, I think, with imagery than it has to do with the behavior of the artists and critics. I heard just recently from Hal Fisher when I was over at our college and uh, talking um, that a group of people who are called critics on the East Coast call a group of people who are critics on the West Coast soft critics. My assumption is then the people on the East Coast are hard critics, which may be like hard science and soft science, or hardware and software. I don't know what they're talking about, really. <clears throat> uh, less brashness out here, more courtesy, maybe, uh, timidity. I don't know what it is that makes this distinction, but I realize there is a distinction. I also realize there's a difference in self-motivation, you know, in, in aggressiveness, not self-motivation, but aggressiveness. 
that uh, if you've had to um, stomp your way through the crowds most of your life, rather than through the cornfield, you may be a bit more aggressive towards other human beings to get your way and make yourself heard, and so on. Again, what you say has <coughs> may or may not have value, but you'll be heard if you're aggressive. And I do, I do uh, find that more in the East than I do uh, in the West. We lived in New York for a time, and I found it mainly in and around New York City, not in upstate New York. I mean, those guys are the ones who vote for right-wingers. <laughs> and uh, they're not aggressive except when you try to take their income tax money and uh, spend it on something they don't want you to spend it on. How does Henry fit into this, uh, this discussion then? As a, as a Midwesterner, somebody who spent his whole life there, really, Yes. had certainly uh, <coughs> must have considered going east or west earlier. Yes. He did, and I believe I recall him saying that he wished he had occasionally taken the leap. However, he wasn't out of touch. Uh, while other Midwesterners and uh, New Yorkers around the candy store and Philadelphia basketball players and so on were doing all what, of what they do, I don't know what they do, uh, he was cartooning for the New Yorker magazine. He was uh, writing letters to people he admired. He was reading theater arts and getting some idea of what was going on in the other parts of the world. <clears throat> he remembered that uh, both Carl Sandburg and uh, his uh, brother-in-law, Steichen, came from Wisconsin. Um, he knew, because he was in and around Chicago a lot, that perhaps that is, as that's yet to be discovered, the center of what might be a national culture for this country. I mean, I'm thinking now Frank Lloyd Wright and, uh, you know, on and on, many people involved in that. The fact that they went east, west, north, south is uh, something we have to explain in another way, maybe. It, it might be also, again, I'll go back to something I quoted from Jackson Pollock. You call it, he was born in Wyoming, grew up in California, and so on cowboy-like background, um, and when he said about Tom Benton, it was another hard attack, you know, gave him something to fight against. I feel this, I've discussed this with Smith and others, about the West Coast. Uh, it's hard for a youngster, adolescent, to grow up here because uh, there is nothing really to test yourself against. I mean, you run up against the wall, and it's not a brick wall. It's made out of Disney gelatin or something, you know. And, wow, how soft and neat. I'll do it again. Doesn't hurt. <clears throat> well, you do have to test yourself occasionally. Not only against people, but mainly against yourself. What are my limits? And what are my powers? And so on. And if there's no challenge, such as that hard-nosed, puritanical challenge that comes in the Bible Belt, wherever you find it, Canada, here, wherever, you know, or if it doesn't come from a Jesuit uh, school, or if it doesn't come from a taskmaster parent or something, or from a street gang, you sometimes never know who you are or what your limits are. And that can be terribly dangerous the older you grow. So I think in the case of Henry, when he became righteously indignant over things that perhaps others thought were trivial. 
uh, had we all stamped our feet a bit more, there wouldn't have been a Watergate. Perhaps not even the Vietnam War. But many of us have lost uh, that sense of righteous indignation when you see a clue, you know, because you can let that clue grow and it goes bigger and bigger like cancer. So um, I felt sorry for Henry occasionally for getting himself so upset because uh, I don't think it's, it's good for him, but I admired him for doing it. Would you have considered him a social activist? Long before it became popular. Yeah. What kinds of causes, what kinds of ideas? Any, the inequality of human being and human being. That's essentially, um, uh, that <laughs> I can always angry on that, if nothing else. <laughs> did that did that reflect itself in any uh, uh, preaching to the students or or uh, lobbying? In, in Don't pull rank. That was essentially it. Uh, you have a job to do that requires that you get other people to help you do it, and so on. Do it. Explain to them why it should be done, and so on. But don't pull rank. Now, nobody's perfect, and I'm sure he doesn't practice that 100%. But I saw that as a rather consistent part of his character. Um, to my knowledge, um, the only person that he detested was Eisenhower. <laughs> uh, I guess for many reasons, but it, I, I don't think it had to do necessarily with the fact that he ran on the Republican ticket. I think it had to do with the fact that he was a screw-off and a general. <laughs> you know, he did nothing but have heart attacks and play golf. <laughs> and he left the country in the hands of Nixons and everybody else. You don't feel he had trouble with authority figures in general? Smith? No, not in general. No. No, in particular, not in general. He has a great number of heroes like you and I and everyone else has any sense would have. People he truly respects for what they've accomplished and doesn't condemn for their failings. And uh, he could name off, he could rattle off quite a few uh, in photography and other places as well. And yet, at the same time, he's not gullible. Behind the mask, there's always a human being. So... Uh, when you go to the uh, National Gallery down in the print room and you find snapshots made by Stieglitz, you just say, well, why not? Give me some snapshots. I understand that <clears throat> uh, Keith didn't want those shown for many years, and there's, there's still a little hassle about it. It doesn't show him as being a master every second of his life. Well, in my estimation, it doesn't detract from what he did. And I'm trying to put it in terms of uh, that would reflect what I've seen of Henry's uh, behavior towards the greats and near greats. Um, another cause that concerned him uh, very often was uh, the cause of, uh, of being ignored. And he felt that a great number of people, including many commercial people in photography, have been ignored by uh, uh, scholarly and museum interests. And uh, it comes from the 
scholars and museums having such a narrow aesthetic that it's almost tunnel vision. They can't make the relationship. And the relationship, when you use the word photography, the relationship is enormous, enormous. Harvey is wrong. It's not a little thing. It's a multi-million, billion-dollar affair with billions of frames of photographic evidence piled up every year. It's not a little. Was was Henry totally unwilling to court, for his own benefit, to court the uh, photographic power system? Well, I don't. Is he still? I don't know. I don't. Um, I know that he wanted some sense, some recognition, some stroking, as the transactionalists would say, like most of us need at times. Um, I had never heard him um, terribly angry about the fact that uh, when, when uh, Steichen was head of MAMA photo department that he said that he liked Smith's work but it wasn't photography. David Vestal said the same thing and then finally he said I finally got through to him about 10 or 15 years later how stupid that was. <laughs> Uh, but I heard him uh, sound off rather annoyed about other people being ignored because they, well, Fred Summer, Aaron Siskin, he was indignant that the museums had ignored those two men as long as they had. Finally, they stopped ignoring them, but it took uh, quite a long time. Um, I don't think Summer still is appreciated to the extent that I'm assuming he shall be, you know. Is that also true of Henry Smith? Yes, oh, I'm certain of this. Yes, because we have to get over the fact that the novelty of photography, which is sold to us as a novelty. It's made up of cameras and they've got chrome plate and so on. And even the guy who has had 50 Nikons and worn them all out, May still be a gadget hound deep down inside, you know. Uh, when you treat it all like the phenomenon of language, the whole business called photography, and then you begin picking out without worrying about whether it's Russian or Chinese or English or what have you, uh, those things which were said that are of value, I think Smith and many other people will be valued more. But the idea that they're, photog they're non-camera photography, hence, you can't deal with them in the same room, the same game. That's just absurd to me. And that's, uh, I was in archaeology and anthropology for a while, and I know that if we had practiced archaeology in particular in that matter, we would have thrown half of the culture away before we, who were blind and dumb and ignorant, got through, translated the code that that material was hiding, you know. The information was hidden right there in front of our eyes, and we couldn't put it together at that time. So, we've got a lot of people like that. Yeah. Seeing that a lot of those, those <clears throat> ideas that Henry pioneered have become more 
popular and become more uh, uh, intensively mm -hmm. investigated by another generation of uh, photographers. Would you classify him, in a sense, as being the father of some of those techniques? Uh, no. Jack Welpott has called him father of modern photography. I don't. No, I wouldn't do that because that doesn't reflect Henry's sense of the history of this enormous, complex phenomenon. And uh, I don't think there are any fathers and mothers and so on. It's our ignorance where we, when we stop seeing beginnings, and it is our primitive behavior when we stop asking the question, what's behind what I know? You know what's behind that and what's behind that? Uh, look how long we played the game of Daguerre being the father of photography. When, in fact, some historians knew damn sight better than that. We also knew that the camera was far older than the European, Italian sources, that it was Moorish. But talking about Muslim culture and the culture of the Moors was not fashionable nor popular in academia. It's also difficult to do research in Arabic language. <laughs> you can do it easier in German, French. At any rate, we'll see some differences, I'm sure, um, concerning the beginnings of all those things we now think are modern or new or what have you. And uh, each of the individuals are like milestones. But we don't know where the journey started, and we don't know where it's going to end. We see a direction, but that doesn't tell you what the destination is going to be. <laughs> so I certainly wouldn't, uh, knowing Henry's wide knowledge of the field, I wouldn't say that he was the father of this or that or the other. He was, uh, he's a, a person who is a great companion to have on the journey, though. I'd like to compare him uh, up against some of the other important mm -hmm. movements that were going on in the last, uh, say, 20, 25 years in, in the field. Uh, for instance, what is his relationship to, to Minor White, uh, his appraisal of Minor White, his relationship to Aperture, writing for Aperture? Mm -hmm. He was always pleased to write for Aperture, and as far as I know, he and Minor were... Um, were not at odds with each other. They got along as civilized human beings and uh, enjoyed each other's uh, conversation and so on when they met. Again, he was happy to write whenever Minor wanted him to. Uh, his difference with Minor was that um, Henry, as a guy from the old newspaper print world, knew the difference between an editor and a censor. And that's a fine difference, obviously. But he sometimes felt that Minor was was holding back points of view that should have been exposed in a in, in a publication that at that time had the prestige that Aperture did because it was unique. <laughs> there wasn't anything around like it, and there hadn't been for quite a few years. You know, not since before World War II. <clears throat> so he had <clears throat> he had a unique, prestigious publication. That was uh, uh, being read seriously by the um, leadership, the elite, whatever you care to call them, in the field of still photography particularly. And he was censoring out, Henry thought, certain points of view that should be broadcast. 
I would say one of the points of view uh, uh, had to do with um, the great concern that I sensed Miner had uh, trying to be a second camera work. And uh, he didn't follow that his whole uh, aperture career, obviously, but it started kind of that way, which left out a considerable number of things that should otherwise have been included, especially if you were Stieglitz. You would have included it. Uh, so anyway, it, that's the major uh, criticism I can recall that uh, Henry had of Minor. Uh, he was gentler than many in criticizing Minor because he respected what the man had done. And I think others didn't appreciate the fact how difficult it is to start something, give it prestige, and get it to the point where he did with very little cost to anybody. Very little cost indeed. How about the philosophical <clears throat> involvement uh, with Minor? Was, was Henry Smith at all interested in mysticism, the East, and the, the kind of thing that was going on with the, yes. the uh, Gurdjieffian groups like no. uh, heliographers in New York in 1960? No, he was interested, of course, in those things. But we were all interested in those things, but not uh, any more interested in that than uh, in uh, some of the good and the evil of the positivists, or uh, some of the good and the bad of the pragmatists, and so on and so forth. Uh, one of the large inventory of possibilities to understand the world you live in. Uh, when it got to a point where it became a church, uh, with Gurdjieff as uh, the father, I don't think uh, he or I, well, damn few of us would have gone that way. I'm intrigued by the Gurdjieffian stuff, and I have to call it stuff right now, because there's far more of it than has been published, and there's a lot of folklore that has to be collected. Because we have to know about the behavior of the people. The behavior of the man is not that important. I mean, who cares about how Christ behaved? So how do the followers, followers behave, the disciples? Yeah, we don't really have enough information, I think. Okay. I want to pass on a little bit to your own career since since the time that you left uh, Indiana. Mm -hmm. uh, your involvement with administration, does that in any way relate to experiences with Henry Smith? No, 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 it was a fluke. Uh, it's like getting kicked upstairs. Nobody wants the job, so you do it, and so on and so forth. It's like my going to college. I had no plan of getting a degree, but I have stayed on, and I got a few. <laughs> and then I never intended to teach. That wasn't my ambition in life, ever, ever, you know. But I did, finally. Then administration, not at all. But it happened. 
Um, I know the direction, but I, I don't always know the next step. <laughs> but I knew that somewhere along the line I wanted to be a supporting part of the art world. I owe a great deal, as I said, that's a, a single thread of sanity in my life. I owe a great deal to that human tradition. So um, I felt that I, if I could do these things, I would do them. I also had been shown that they can be done very badly and uh, with a great deal of injustice, and I hope I haven't done that too often in, in administrative work. But uh, I guess if Henry had any influence at all in that, it was simply my seeing him get uh, a foot in the mouth very often at uh, a university that should have known better. He was passed over time and again for uh, promotion and apparently was yeah. still not the full tenured faculty uh, That's right. 20 years after That's he right. Started. And finally the the dean discovered this. I think it was a new dean. He discovered this, and he couldn't believe it. This man with the reputation he had, the timing he put in, and so on, at the level he was at. And he called the department head in and fixed it up very quickly. However, it was rather late, and Henry was quite bitter about it all. And I think his health had been damaged by that bitterness, that pent-up anger and rage and so on, he may know better, but I would say that that might be the case. I know it's happened with me quite often. If I hold it in too long and if I don't, if I can't understand what it's coming from and what the reasons are and so on, you can make yourself ill. Not difficult to do. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to change, turn this tape over and ask you one more major question. Years on many different levels. If I can, mm -hmm. if I can find it, you it's about 1948. 1948, and mm -hmm. you respect him as a colleague, friend, student, and admirer. The order of those roles still changing depending on the occasion. Mm -hmm. Can you give me an appraisal of what you consider the strong, strong points and, uh, and the weak points of his career, and his life as a uh, as a teacher and artist? Well, the strong points are an, an openness <clears throat> that I found rare amongst teachers, well, regardless of subject. Uh, concern with standards, even though. He was far 
the experiment, he wanted uh, to see a value judgment placed upon the result, a standard set and so on. So he was not uh, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, these were the strong points. The fact, of course, that he didn't have to uh, um, play conventional games, that he was his own man, was important and a thing I respect very much. Uh, the shortcoming, as I said in the article that, that I wrote, called an appreciation uh, of Henry for his retrospective, I wished, uh, uh, when I was at IU, I wished that he had uh, taken a little more time to translate into more commonplace language some of the uh, criticisms, some of the observations that he made, because I think the students could have grasped the importance of those things. Uh, that he didn't do it is just a fact. He was in a hurry and uh, he perhaps felt uh, they had more time than he did. That's a, mainly the, a shortcoming, I think. Why, over such a long period of time, has so little of, of his photographic work been seen? It's not conventional. Only conventional work is shown, and that includes work that uh, uh, is on the borderline of censorship, erotica, blackmail, all that sort of thing, uh, national secrets. Uh, you can see those things easier because they're conventional. I mean, they're made with a conventional camera, and they all look like photographs, and you know. It's just uh, easier to get them shown. Uh, that's number one. Number two, the subject matter is more conventional. Everybody has sex. So what the hell's the big deal about showing sex photographs? But everybody doesn't look like Caro Syrup. <laughs> so it's very hard to look at those things if you're going to be, if you're caught, you know, so to speak, in, in conventional ways of viewing the world. Well, certainly, there's been a lot of unconventional work that has been that has been seen a good deal uh, in the last number of years. Particularly, yeah. people have been making blueprints with fabrics and stuffing them with diamonds. Nothing terribly new, because all these are revivalist techniques. Um, when when silver seemed to be running out of style, and the '60s descent and all that sort of thing, and in the Midwest, the experiments even before out here, they are on the East Coast, the Midwest. I believe Art Sensible was the first person I recall to have written something about the revivalist trend that was taking place. And that must have been, that must have been 18 to 20 years ago or more than that, I don't recall. Um, but these are revivalist techniques, bringing back what we already know. Uh, the imagery of this is, in my estimation, fairly trivial. The, the revival of the technique is more important. And so um, the trivia of the image and the conventionality of the image very often just uh, it doesn't make them terribly uh, important to me. Uh, I'm sure how glad, though, to see that people are attempting to find something other than the silver standard document. Well, it's a sign of life that there is that vigor going yes. on. Well, yeah, right. And uh, 
I think it, it would be very difficult for a person to also use one of those new techniques and complex, profound, historically rooted imagery. And not many are doing it, so that's not a great critical problem, I feel. Well, Henry Smith was not the first person to make photograms oh, and, yeah. and, uh, no. and using, uh, perhaps he was, uh, maybe it was his own, uh, he was made, he, he perhaps was the first one to, to use uh, flowing syrup uh, to make an action, yeah. kind of action painting. And that wasn't really, that wasn't of any great importance. The importance is the image. Right. And then some of those earlier images were camera photographs, mm -hmm. double printed um, through diet transfer technique, triple printed and so on, which set up space relationships that you can't do in any other way. And the color added another dimension to that space. That is color other than black and white. So uh, he was already on to something. That's what, I guess that's what attracted Maholi to him. Because Maholi's mind was always bursting like, like a bomb. Uh, his heroes, uh, amongst others, he's already said, uh, um, were people like Maholi, like James Man Ray and Bruyere, Edward Weston, Walker Evans, uh, uh, Cartier-Bresson. All of these people were to him great photographers. Oh, and Stevens, obviously. And the Catholic idea of Stieglitz to show masks and cubism and photography and everything else appealed, I think, to very open. <clears throat> I'd like at this point if you would add any final thoughts you have that you think might help us uh, for this tape. That's very difficult uh, just to uh, pre-associate something out of my experience with uh, Henry and others. I, I don't know what to answer, really. I don't know that... Uh, I know I could comment uh, further on many things that I said, but uh, that also becomes uh, boring and not informative at times. Um, we're just wasting tape now. <laughs> okay. All right. Far be it from us to do that. So yes. Thank you for your uh, for your time. That's all right. Officially, we have evidence of that now. Yeah. And. Uh, I appreciate all of this, and I'm sure that Eastman House will be in touch with you concerning the use of the tape. Very good. <laughs>